0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the New Faces. Uh, I'd like to ask for your attention again on topics pertinent to our introspective exercise. I would like to continue my little sequence on the uh, four forms of establishing mindfulness as. Uh, I see them taught in the Satipatthana teachings. I have left off last week on speaking of citta and aspects of citta anupassana, and I'd like to continue that today. The contemplation of mind, contemplation of states of mind, and maybe let us start with the terms. The Pali term anupassana has something to do with seeing. But it is probably better to understand that term Anupasana to be translated as contemplation rather than as mere observation. As you will have heard from mine, from my previous statements on this topic, um, one of the key aspects of sati is establishing relationship. One of the key aspects of mindfulness is establishes relationship with a process, with an object, with a field, uh, with an internal, with an external experience, with an event in our mind. That's one of its key functions. It establishes a type of relationship. Now, what type of relationship that exactly is, hinges very much on how we uh, construe that relationship. A relationship of observing is construed on the basis of the visual sense field. It's construed on the ocular metaphor, if you so want. In other words, my relationships of seeing are determined or influenced strongly um, by my sense organ. Now, my eye does a lot of things. It can be open or it can be closed. It can move. My head, in which the eye rests, can move. I can squint, I can focus on something, I can do an awful lot of things with my eyes. If my relationship to my meditation object is based on my
1: relationship,
0: (coughs) my visual relationship to things, my type of sati will start to have, uh, be influenced by my visual behavior. That's not as abstract as it may sound. Consider, you may see things that don't even see you. So, you may, uh, s- The act of seeing always inflicts distance. In other words, whenever you see things, you tend to see things from a distance. One of the things that happens is you, you impose distance. You impose perspective. Seeing will inevitably create space. Our our f- field of vision creates space. Our brain does that by a, a number of ingenious tricks without telling you so. uses the stereo effects up to about six meters, then it starts using big small differences to establish distance and then further away it starts to use black and white stuff for bright dark. Now your brain doesn't really tell you that it does do that. You know? How it arrives at space perspective. It doesn't tell you, but it does that. So if we take our relationship to the meditation object based on a term like observation, which is a visual term, I tacitly smuggle my visual relationship to things into my meditation. For some things this is very good. Observing things is very good, particularly if they're big, nasty, threatening to flood me. So. Anger, very good. Capable of observation. Doubt, very good. Capable of observation. Um, anxiety, very good if i capable to distance myself. Huh? Very, very good to be able to observe this. But many things in my experience, they don't actually need to be distanced. They're not helped by being distanced. They're not helped by being put away. They're not helped by being removed. They're not helped when I move away from them. So I'm really championing more reflection around this topic so that sati doesn't just become habitual observation with all the disadvantages of observation, meaning distance, aloofness, going away from, uh, a certain degree of passivity, and this feeling I'm not actually quite there where it's happening. There are many things that benefit from when we construe our relationship to our meditative event or meditative process or object, not along the metaphor of the eye, but maybe along the metaphor of the ear. Now imagine how you differently listen, how differently you're in relationship if you listen. Immediately when you listen, generally people close their eyes if they listen intently. Yeah? Their, their sense of presence drops from somewhere between their eyes, drop somewhere in between, into their heart or into their center of the body. If I listen to something, I am a lot less active. I can't do with my ears what I can do with my eyes. My ears can't swivel and turn and squint like my eyes can. I can't even close my ears like camels can. So if I habitually learn to establish relationship to myself and to my meditative process only along the lines of my I-consciousness, my I-sense, then I may actually find myself habitually distancing stuff, habitually going into observation mode, habitually going into passive mode, habitually going into kind of safety procedures, Yeah, take step back. While that is useful for some things, it is not useful for many things and it may be more useful that I create another type of relationship a sniffing relationship, yeah, along the lines of my olfactory sense now that gives me a greater proximity yeah, if I go and sniff out things, sniff out my states of mind sniff out my body feelings, sniff out my my breath, yeah. Yeah, we're very close if we're sniffing isn't it? if we want to know what's in the pot we go and lift the, the lid We're pretty much in it. The things you sniff, you are already physically part of. This is exacerbated by the fact that our olfactory sense um, sits deeper in the limbical system in our brains. In other words, it's older. We have less reflective techniques there. A A smell hits us more viscerally than a visual impression we can do a lot less to filter out the effect of smell. In some ways it's more intimate, more overwhelming easily, but also more immediate. brings me into a very different relationship, isn't it, when I am relating to things on the sniffing level or when I observe things. I'm very much in. If you walk over a meadow where horses graze. You can smell that, those horses, even if the horses aren't there. You walk over that meadow and you smell, whether it's cows or horses, sheep. Often we move through the smell. It's, we're already in it when we actually acknowledge. So this is a lot more intimate. It's a lot more close to the bone. And some things in our practice probably need to be sniffed out, need to be inhabited in a ways that we have an olfactory quality of relationship it doesn't mean that you're going to sniff out your thoughts or sniff out every state of being but that you use the the type of relationship via the sense of smell as an analogy for your relationship to a meditative object even more pronounced the sense of touch our tactile sense yeah where our skin is involved. Whenever we touch something, or particularly whenever we touch somebody, we're quite clearly also being touched. The relationship is quite even. I cannot touch without being touched myself. It's always two-sided. It's not the case when seeing. I can see people who don't see me. I can be a voyeur, I can be an observer from the dark. I can be a spy. There's no guarantee whatsoever that on the level of seeing I am actually establishing a relationship that is an equal relationship. On the sense of touch, I, I am very much equal. I am as much touched as I touch. So if my relationship to my meditative process, to my states, to my sensations, to the stuff that arises in my meditation practice, is establishing itself on the basis of touch, I am very much close. For some things this is desirable. For some things this is needed. For some things this is dangerous. I am keen on um, basically conveying to you that we need to be careful what we do when we habituate our minds. Our minds are easily habituated. Buddhists obviously emphasize good habits, but even good habits are a bit risky if they become independent, if they go automatic, if they get so entrenched in our uh, ways of behaving, in ways of operating in the world, that we do not acknowledge anymore what exactly is happening. In other words, whenever a habit becomes normal, uh, there's a certain danger with it. We may just default on it without actually choosing this habit or choosing this particular approach on its own virtue. Now meditation involves some degree of distancing and for that a sati that is capable of observing and moving out and seeing things in perspective and doing that famous step back, that type of sati is just right. For some things that type of sati is prolonging the problem We need another type of sati, a sati that goes closer, yeah, that is willing to move into something, that is willing to, you know, stick out the feelers and touch something. We need a kind of probing, investigating, curious, uh, respectful, but you know, approaching type of sati. So this becomes particularly dramatic when it comes to, when we come to Chitta Upasana practices. I told you last week the statements the Sutta makes about, you know, is this mind afflicted by um, desire, by hatred, by delusion, is this mind, uh, has it become big, has it become uh, is it undeveloped, is this mind shriveled, um, shrunk, contracted, or is this mind scattered? Is this mind collected? Is it not collected? Is it surpassable? Is it not surpassable? Is it unsurpassable, more precisely? Is it liberated? Is it not liberated? These are the statements the sutta makes. Now, how are we going to practice, really, with those statements? How does this practically here, is this translated into what I'm actually doing? Well, I think a clue is... Uh, A statement we find somewhere else in the sutta. Not in this sutta, but in other suttas, in fact, in various places. And this is the statement that uh, all things in our mind converge on Vedana, converge on feeling tone. That's a lead-in. We can hover where we acknowledge feeling tone. When we acknowledge feeling tone, pleasant, generally, unpleasant, often, the... The third type of feeling tone, the indifferent, uh, we rarely get straight away. takes some meditative uh, acumen to be able to maintain awareness of things we are indifferent towards. But pleasant and unpleasant are the connection point where we get at jittas. Usually when things pleasant happen, what is followed, uh, what, what follows is that my mind likes you know. The pleasant and the liking are not the same thing. It's quite possible to experience pleasant things without liking them. But the habitual response of an untrained mind is, if it is pleasant, A. I am interested, I like it, and it makes my mind more happy. It makes it more bright, at least for a short moment. That's the standard reaction. It would be very dishonest to say that we most of us can experience pleasant things and stay completely neutral. The truth is, most of us, when we experience pleasant things, we simply like it. We like it to continue, and it brightens our mind. It gives us some gratification that feels good. Yeah? Feels good in the body, feels good in the mind, feels good in respect to our self-construct. You can measure neurologically a couple of interesting things. You know, That's what's happening. If unpleasant things happen, unpleasant feeling tones happen, usually the opposite happens. I dislike it, it brings up an un, um, an unhappy state of mind, maybe more tinged with sadness, maybe more tinged with aversion, definitely tinged with some form of resistance, and some some distancing usually takes place. So that is the entry point to chittas, to states of mind, is looking or being uh, more closely related to feeling tones and see how the feeling tone affects the state of mind. Just a, the little change in light and what, uh, what that does to me. Yeah? Sun goes away, suddenly the room goes a little darker. Do I feel relieved by that? Is this agreeable? Does this make me, ah, or does it do the opposite, oh, something goes away? That's what we are encouraged to. Vedana samu Yati. All things converge on feelings is a powerful statement. And those Vedanas are a clue for our citta states. If we want to know about citta states, let us have a look how we're affected by Vedana, by feeling tone. So that's one way in. Another way in is we follow the encouragement of some other Buddhist teachings, you find some of this in the Satipatthana itself, but you find it also in the Anapanasati Sutta, to attend to the process of disappearing. Now, the suttas refer to that. Anicca-nupasi sees impermanence, Viraga-nupasi sees the fading away, Niroda-nupasi sees the cessation. So, in other words, we pay close attention to the disappearance of things. Yeah. That does something to the climate of the mind. Attending to appearance of things, to the beginning of things, celebrating uh, birth and weddings rather than death and divorces is what our culture does. Yeah? We're good on beginnings. That's the promising bit. The stopping, the ending, the tapering off, the kind of disillusionment bit, that's not what we celebrate. So, Buddhist meditative exercise suggests a shift of emphasis, not permanently, but as an intervention technique, acknowledging that cessation part, acknowledging the fading away part, acknowledging the disappearing, the tapering off part, and looking at what that does to the climate of mind. All of these fading events, all of these fading objects, all of these fading states are happening within the climate of the mind. And we get in touch with the climate of the mind when we attend to the disappearance of things. Yeah. Japanese tradition, culture has uh, some very interesting aesthetical concept. One of these concepts is something called mono no avare the poignancy of all things, the the dimension of the heart-rendering of all things. And it speaks in very powerful ways of how the human heart is touched by acknowledging the preciousness of things because they are not permanent, because they fade. And they are both precious and beautiful and endearing, and at the same time they're fading. They cannot be maintained. They are at peril. And by attending to what happens when things disappear, we get into touch with something very powerful, very deeply moving, and very uh, sobering also. Something that gives rise to a sense of urgency. What Buddhist teaching refers to a Sangvega. It's a very precious emotion. Buddhist teachings usually doesn't em- encourage lots of emotion. Usually Buddhists are down on emotion. Huh? And I hope you understand, the brahma are not just emotions. Even though they have emotional overtones, brahma are not emotions. So brahma are very much encouraged by Buddhists. But usually Buddhists think emotions, particularly strong, powerful, passionate, violent emotions, are quite detrimental to our capacity to understand things. But there are some emotions, uh, even staunch Buddhists are quite in favor of. One of them is this term Sangvega about which I have to say something else at some other point. So when I want to practice Chitta upasana, I have a few leads in. One of them is I acknowledge feeling tone. Another one is, I acknowledge this disappearing, fading, tapering off p- part of my experiences. Yeah. A breath, the fading of a breath, the fading of a taste. Whoever has the patience to be with a fading taste on your tongue when you eat, usually we don't have the patience to wait for that fading to occur. Yeah. We would be still eating at two o'clock if we did that. But it's a good exercise to just hover for a moment and wait till a taste actually fades before you keep putting the next morsel in. It's interesting. So, attending to the fading part. If you want to do a regular practice out of this, connect that fading, disappearing, stopping with the breath. And then you look what's happening in the space after the fading. What happens to the climate of mind when things fade that generally is very revealing a third way in would be three simple questions those are non-canonical so take them uh, with the usual pinch of salt one question is to just dip in the thermometer and say okay what is the state now is this bright, is this dark is this tight, is this welcoming, is this anxious is this contracted, is this open just kind of As if you drop in the litmus paper, yeah? Say, hmm, remember chemistry? Okay, acidity that much, yeah? That alkaline, so forth, yeah? You remember the strip changes color. Then there's another question which looks at the thoughts and the images that move through your mind. And instead of playing with those thoughts or with those images, you ask yourself, From which corner does the wind blow that moves these thoughts and images across my mind? Is this an angry wind? Is this an anxious wind? Is this a greedy wind? Is this a jealous wind? So Sometimes we see, uh, rather than just looking at the little sailboats that go across the lake of our mind, we're actually looking where the wind blows from, which corner. little thought sailboats in our minds, they have a, they're propelled by a particular kind of breeze. That breeze comes from a particular corner. It may be more wishful, it may be more anxious, it may be more angry. So instead of playing with the boats and fiddling with the thoughts, we're actually trying to ascertain what is the direction of wind. There are no thoughts which have no such direction. All your thoughts have a dimension that is, is, is connected with the chitta state. If your thoughts pretend to be absolutely sober and rational and cool, be, be very afraid. Yeah. They're unlikely to be that way. Remember all these satipatthanas occur simultaneously. We don't just get thoughts. Every thought has a, an emotional a Sankara component has a propellant in there. So it's good to establish where that propellant comes from. That would be the second question. The third one is, um, if I join this thought, if I go along with this, where does it take me in a minute? I don't know how it is for you, but most of my thoughts are not very original. So many of the things that come up in my meditation, I know pretty much where they're gonna beach me in a minute or two. Yeah, I've done this a number of times, and I have a fairly clear idea if I join this thought, if I give this thought my energy, if I consent to thinking this thought now, this guy is going to take me to some longing in a minute, or he's going to make me grumpy, or he's going to make me helpless. I pretty much know this. So consider, how is it? That's the first question. What is the corner from which that wind blows? What kind of emotional, what chitta quality propels that type of thought? Usually the, the options aren't that big. Huh? It's either something to do with wish or something to do with wanting to get rid of or something to do with fear or something to do with a little more complicated emotion like uh, jealousy or envy or anxiety or melancholy or something like that. And the third question is, okay, if I kind of, if I board this train, where is it going to take me, The thought train, you know? Have I boarded this train before? Very likely you've boarded this train before. It's unlikely that you have an absolute pristine new type of thought, which you have never had. And most of the time, you know, uh, this one is going to take me to depressia, or... This one is going to take me to grumpy land, or, you know, we know when we board trains and we pretty much have an idea where they go. So we acknowledge this and don't board the train, that would be the suggestion. Good, yeah. thanks for your attention, let's practice.